Well, praise God. If you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we've been going through a journey as a church through, uh, through the book of Acts. We're looking together at the stories of the early church as recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. And man, we've seen on the first days of the early church, man, there were some exciting times. The Holy Spirit was moving through the church. Thousands of people were believing in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. There were signs and there were wonders taking place. There were miracles that were happening. We talked a few weeks ago about the the man who was lame, right, for 40 years, who was raised up by the power in the name of Jesus. The early church, we we know this, was thriving at the beginning. It, It even says in the Gospels there that they had favor with all the people. And if you look at things through the lens of maybe a a church growth expert, right, they would probably say this was a successful church, explosive growth. But as we come to chapter four, things are going to change dramatically. The honeymoon is over, if you will. And from this point on, opposition to the gospel becomes the world in which the church exists. If we are honest today, for the most part, we in America have not uh, experienced real persecution. And yet it is the blood of the martyrs that has been and will continue to be the ground upon which the church is built. In the book of Acts up until this point, the gospel has been pretty much received or at least tolerated, right? Remember, the apostles are teaching in the temple and apparently the religious leaders were okay with this until now. Chapter four of the book of Acts, we begin to see the first resistance to the gospel. And I wanna share with you some steps that we can take when resistance becomes a reality in our lives, when persecution becomes a reality in our lives. And, And you need to hear this today because it is not possible to go through life doing what is right without paying a price. Like no society has ever been that good that just speaking up on behalf of good doesn't mean that you'll pay a price. The apostles are going to begin to understand the cost of proclaiming the gospel. Would you stand with me as we read from Acts chapter four today? Let's reverence the word of God in that way. Acts chapter four, I'm reading from the ESV, beginning in verse one, it says this. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized 
that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. May God bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you today that as we look at it, Lord, it is living and it's active. We thank you today that you desire to speak to us as your people. And so we pray, Lord God, you would encourage us, you would challenge us. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to to hear from you and to receive from you. And so, Lord, would you anoint my words this morning. Lord God, would you speak by your spirit a word that would challenge us, a word that would change us. Lord, we don't want to leave here the same way. So we thank you that even in this moment, you can do something miraculous to shape us and to change us, to make us more like you. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Praise God. As we've been walking through this book, I've been kind of taking it line by line. Somebody asked me this morning, we're going to be here for a little while, aren't we? I told you guys, we're going to be in Acts for a little while. Um, But this morning, more than anything, I want to talk about uh, some steps that we can take, again, as the people of God, when we face resistance in our lives. When we face resistance for standing up of the truth of the word of God, because more and more, I believe this is going to become a reality for us as believers in the United States. Now, many of you grew up in this country, you grew up in a time uh, when the gospel was understood, when the church was generally accepted. You grew up in a United States that was based on Judeo-Christian principles. And so probably you didn't experience a lot of resistance to the gospel. Maybe you didn't experience a lot of persecution, but things are rapidly changing for us as believers, and so we need to be prepared. Okay, we can't just sit back and expect, man, if we just leave things alone, they're going to turn out all right. No, no, no. The the church needs to be a greater voice in our country. The the church needs to be uh, able to push back on the darkness that seems to surround us. We cannot be silent any longer. And, And the great tragedy of the church today is not that we are censored, but that we are self censored. We, we censor ourselves because we're afraid of how people are going to react if I say that, right? But it's time for the church to wake up and it's time for the church to speak up, amen? And so I want to give you some steps this morning that you can take when resistance becomes a reality in your life, when persecution becomes a reality. And, and these steps are universal. They can fit in any situation. How to respond to resistance to the gospel. Number one, fill this in. If you're following along in the notes, is this, expect it. Expect resistance to the gospel. There are certain things in life that are just expected, right? As a New Yorker, I expect that the weather in March is going to be bipolar, right? It's going to be 68 today. It's going to be snowing tomorrow, right? And so if I know that, I prepare for that, right? If I go out of the house, I make sure I got a sweater. I make sure I got a jacket because things could change quickly. 
And when it comes to resistance to the gospel, when it comes to persecution for standing on truth, it, we can no longer wait for that to be at our doorstep. We gotta begin to plan for it. What are we gonna do when resistance comes? What are we gonna do when we're told, oh, you can't gather and you can't worship, right? You, you can't make that decision in the moment. You have to decide ahead of time what you're gonna do. That's why I've told you guys many times, we're not closing our doors again, because I, 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 need, you, I need you to hold me accountable to that, amen? We, we believe in the importance of this gathering, uh, that we come together and proclaim the name of Jesus. Too many Christians, and, and sadly too many churches, make decisions based on the path of least resistance, right? Like whatever's easiest, that must be the Lord's will. No, it's not always the case. And some say, you know what, we just want to keep the peace, and their highest value is peace. They say, oh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But you have to understand today what peace is. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Hear me today. It is not the absence of conflict. There's going to be battles that we have to fight when we stand up for truth. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of Christ in the midst of the conflict. Jesus said this, in this world you will have troubles. In other words, you ought to expect it. He also said in Matthew 10, 34, he says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, he says, but a sword. And so we need to understand, church, the urgency of this hour that we live in. We are contending today against some very godless ideologies in this country. We are contending against things that stand in direct opposition to the word of God. And hear me today, because people are not the, the enemy. There's an opportunity with people, right? There's an opportunity to speak into their lives and see God transform their lives. People are not the enemy, but when the enemy of our souls begins to lose ground, he will inspire those who don't know the Lord to feel threatened by those who follow Jesus. You can't explain it any other way. Again, they're not the enemy, but the ideology they hold is the enemy, and so we go after ideology, okay? We attack that way of thinking. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he said this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Now you may say this morning, Pastor, well, I feel strongly about a lot of things, but I just don't want to get political. It gets messy, right? And I would say, okay, don't get political, get biblical. <laughs> like, what does the word of God say about that thing? And as you dig into the word of God, I want to say it is going to play out in your politics, right? Because you're going to understand there are certain things that are very important that I stand up for and I stand with. And so standing up for truth will eventually put all of us in conflict with the world. As Peter and John are rounded up in this passage, they're rounded up by the authorities. They're placed in prison overnight. I wonder if Jesus' words echoed in their ears. In Luke 21, verse 12, Jesus said this to them. He said, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Jesus is saying, be prepared. <laughs> Expect resistance because it's actually an opportunity. Now, the group that arrested Peter and John was a very powerful group. They, they overheard what Peter was declaring, and so they step in and they interrupt his sermon. Notice it says right there in verse 1, as they were speaking to the people. 
They didn't wait for Peter to finish and say, hey, Peter, could we just have a word with you on the side here real quick? No, they heard enough, they, they, they had enough, their power was actually being threatened at this point. And here's the reality, when you stand up for truth, those whose power is not based on truth are always going to feel threatened. When, when we talk about truth, understand this, truth is never afraid of a lie, but a lie can't survive in the face of truth. And these religious leaders now, they need to suppress the truth in order to put forth a lie. And what was their specific complaint against the apostles, against Peter and John really here? It was the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These leaders were from a group called the Sanhedrin. It was the highest ruling body of the Jews. It was made up of 70 leaders plus the high priest who he kind of served as, as the president, if you will. And there were three groups and two parties representing the 70, much like our political system, right? Conservatives, liberals, moderates, right? Republican, Democrat. And so here the rulers were the chief priests of the temple. The elders were the tribal or or family heads of the nation. The scribes were the experts in the law and in the oral tradition. The two religious parties were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees were so committed to really the preservation of the law. They were committed to the traditions of the people. They were committed to every minute detail of the regulations of their religion. They hated foreign dominion, domination. They admitted the possibility of spirits. They accepted the idea of the resurrection, and they were awaiting the coming Messiah, but only according to their carefully defined presuppositions. The Pharisees were known for their impeccable legalism. They would tithe on everything, right? The Sadducees, though, were actually the ones who controlled the wealth. They owned most of the land. They had immense power. For them, it was all about peace at any price when it came to foreign powers. Anything that would help them keep their material possessions. In fact, they had actually worked out a deal with the Romans which would cost them dearly, but it allowed them to keep control of their finances and to keep their status. Theologically, the Sadducees were often in direct opposition, conflict with the Pharisees because they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in a life beyond the grave. They didn't even believe in a spirit realm of angels or demons. And they did not anxiously await the Messiah. After all, why would we want him to come back when life is so good, right? And so the Sadducees desperately wanted to keep things just the way they are. And so to them, this idea of resurrection, the word resurrection was synonymous with revolution. And so they want to silence this type of language. No revolution. We want to keep things status quo, right? Can you see why the Pharisees opposed Jesus for theological reasons and why the Sadducees hated the early Christians for political reasons and economic reasons? And so it was the Sadducees that were annoyed by the fact that they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It's amazing because later on in Acts 23, we'll be there sometime in the fall, I guess. Um, But the Apostle Paul is going to stand before the chief priest, and and he says this in in Acts 23, verse 6. It says, now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. You see, Paul knew here exactly how to make them turn on each other, right? Let me bring up a topic that they don't agree on, and and I'm going to divide them, okay? And that's what happened. 
But Peter and John here, they're arrested in our passage and they don't seem surprised when they experience resistance because they had seen this before. They had seen firsthand resistance to Jesus as he's taught and as he healed others. They had experienced this resistance before and so they're not shocked by it. And here's what you need to know today, that we have an enemy. We do. And he is in control of those who are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says this about us before we became alive in Christ. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Listen to me today. If people resisted and rejected Jesus, they will resist and reject us as well. And this does not give us an excuse to be offensive in the way that we present the gospel, right? It doesn't mean I pick up a bullhorn and I blast the gospel in your ear because you're gonna be offended. That's not what it means, right? Hear me, Peter and John are just being obedient to what God told them to do. They healed a, a man who was lame from birth And then they explained what God was doing to a group of people who were anxious to understand it, right? And I wonder what if the Christian life was just that simple? What if witnessing was that simple, right? If you live your life obedient to God and to what he tells you to do, and when God shows up in the midst of your obedience, people are going to ask some questions, right? And you just begin to share. In our world, in this time, though, that's all it takes to get into trouble, right? I said it before, you want to be a rebel in America, get married, have lots of kids, and take your family to church, right? Right away, you are living counterculturally. And so expect persecution, be ready for it, and when it comes, here's the second point, execute plan A. In other words, don't stop doing what you're doing just because you're persecuted for it. Peter and John, they spend the night in a prison cell, and they're brought before a very powerful group of people, In fact, two of the members of this group had been the most directly responsible for the order to crucify Jesus. That's how powerful these people were. And so here they are standing before the most powerful family in all of Israel, and the question was simple. It was very direct. By what power or by what name did you do this? They want to know what is the authority behind your actions and behind your preaching, Now, we've heard this question before. It's the exact same question that they asked Jesus in Matthew 21, 23, right? It says there, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? You see, here's the Sanhedrin, the the religious authority in Jerusalem. Again, they're men that have enough power to see Jesus crucified, And when they did that, they thought, actually, the problem's dealt with, right? Jesus is dead. He's out of the picture. But now there's healing taking place. There's preaching being done in that same name. And so to say to the Sanhedrin that it was by Jesus' name that we did this, it's by his authority, that is a direct challenge to their decision to kill him. And from a legal perspective, Peter, his defense here is is pathetic, right? I mean, he doesn't deny that he did any of this. He doesn't claim, I got civil rights, I got legal rights. No, instead he goes back to plan A. He doesn't move to plan B. He doesn't say, you know what, John, this is getting a little crazy. Let's calm it down just a little bit, right? Instead, he preaches a 30-second sermon that actually gives these rulers all of the ammunition that they need to convict him. Verse 10, he says, let it be known 
to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well before you. See those words, raised from the dead. Peter goes right back to the sermon that he was just preaching that got him thrown in prison, and he makes the same three points. He says, you made a mistake when you crucified the Savior of the world, but God raised him from the dead, and then he calls him to repent from that mistake. Basically, his statement in summary is this, that everything that we do and everything that we say is authorized by Jesus Christ, and it's all done for his glory. And here's the question for us today, because we got to bring it here. We got to bring it to here and now. How are we going to respond to persecution in our lives? How are we going to respond when we're criticized or unfollowed or what do they call it? Shadow banned, right? Do we need to get more creative? Maybe we just need to figure out a way to communicate the gospel that's less offensive. No, our response to persecution should be to, to proclaim the very same gospel that got us in trouble in the first place. Right? That's exactly what Peter does. If you think about the apostle Paul, I mean, he gets thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, and what does he do in jail? He preaches the same gospel that got him thrown in there in the first place. In fact, he says to the church in Philippi, listen to these words in Philippians 1, uh, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment there, that it has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul's in prison, what does he do? He starts a prison ministry, right? I mean, the guards are literally chained to him. Can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul for an eight-hour shift, <laughs> right? Like, there is no way anyone comes out of that not believing in Jesus Christ, right? I mean, he just tells his testimony, like, come on, I'm, I'm good, I'm in, right? I've heard stories uh, of those in, in persecuted areas. I encourage you, if, if you're not familiar with Voice of the Martyrs, it's a great publication that shares about the persecuted church. It's a great way to understand what's happening globally, and to be able to pray. But there was a pastor in China by the name of Pastor Von Trong. He was imprisoned in communist China, and it said he won 44 communists to Christ before he was released. <laughs> Put him in the prison, what's he gonna do? I'm gonna preach the gospel in that place. And here's the question, what happens if it gets to that place in America? I'm more inclined to say, what happens when it gets to that place in America where we're imprisoned or we're persecuted for our faith? We need to know that in that moment, that imprisonment or persecution because of our faith is a God-initiated opportunity for the gospel to penetrate a dark place. And so we ought to expect persecution, and when persecution comes, stick with plan A, okay? And thirdly, I just want to encourage you to reject the temptation to avoid being offensive by compromising the gospel. Number three, reject the temptation to avoid offense by compromising the gospel. It was typical in that time for a Jewish court system to treat ordinary people pretty gently, right? Like the first time around, it was kind of just a slap on the wrist. It was almost assumed that if you did something wrong, you gotta be ignorant of the laws, and so we're gonna remind you of the law, and we're gonna let you off the first time with a warning. And so in our passage here, they, they send Peter and John out of the room, and they they have this executive session, if you will, and they, they, they say in verse 16, what shall we do with these men? Guys, what are, what are, what are we going to do about this? 
They say there, there was a notable sign that was performed, and it's evident to everyone. We, we can't deny what took place. You guys know that guy. He's been there. Every, every time I come to the temple, that guy's been there. He's been lame for 40 years, right? But in order that this doesn't spread any further, let's give him a warning. <laughs> let's just tell him not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Okay, guys, here's the plan. Let him off with a warning. Okay, that sounds good. Verse 18, they give the verdict, and so they called them, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Notice they didn't say you can't teach anymore. They just said, get the name of Jesus out of there. You guys, it's fine. Just keep it calm and stop talking about Jesus. <laughs> like, you can continue to teach as, as long as it's not by the authority of that condemned heretic Jesus. They can talk all they want about the law. They could talk all they want about civic duty. They could stir up a little bit of dissent against the Romans. That's good. Do that, right? They could teach anything as long as it was not what Jesus had told them, which was to go and be my witnesses, to stand as a witness of the resurrection. And sadly today, too many churches in America will talk more about civic duty than they will about the gospel. They'll tell you, here's how you can be a good person, but let's leave Jesus out because, you know, he, he might offend some, right? Let's just give you a coexist bumper sticker and we'll all get along, right? The religious rulers are basically saying, be nice little boys and listen to our warning and play nice. Do you remember when Jesus was on trial? I mean, Peter wasn't even there in the courtroom. He was outside by the fire. And, and yet he was so afraid of even being connected with the man that was on trial that he denied Jesus three times. But now he's the one on trial. Now he's the one standing before these very same men. What will he do? And, and I, I truly believe that we're facing a crisis in the church as a whole today. Again, far too many churches have softened the message in order to keep people in the seats there's this thinking, if it, we could just give a, a long-term exposure to a kinder, gentler gospel, maybe we can kind of just lure people gently into the kingdom, but that's not the way the kingdom comes. We think, man, over time, maybe if we're nice enough, they'll just start to understand, or at least we can hope, but the apostles understood the bottom line, and so they're not going to compromise the message in order to be politically, for the politics of that day, acceptable, Right? They're not going to compromise the message in order to be accepted by those who are in positions of power. They can't just stay quiet and compromise the gospel. In this season especially, compromise is not something that the church can be a part of. We cannot be a part of compromising the gospel. Because the power of the gospel is not actually in the presentation, it's in the gospel itself. Listen to what Paul says here. He says this, he says, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget about everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. He says, I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would not trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Listen to me today. If we remove the name of Jesus, or we just don't talk about him too much because he's, he's too exclusive. He's, he's too controversial. Jesus is too mysterious, right? He, he, he's too questionable. Well, if we do that... That's the end of the gospel. And so when you have the opportunity 
to speak about Jesus and salvation, you need to make it very clear. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter drives home the truth by proclaiming there in verse 12, and he says, and there is salvation. I want you guys to know this. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That was as offensive then as it is now, right? You mean, what are you telling me? I I can't be good enough for God? That's exactly what I mean. You mean to tell me that all roads don't lead to God? Absolutely not. If they did, then God didn't answer Jesus' prayer when he said, if there's another way, let this pass from me, right? He understood there is no other way. There is salvation in no other name because only a sinless man could willingly take on our sin and die in our place. God, who is holy and just, provided a way, the only way, at the greatest possible cost to himself. This is how we know the love of God that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. But what keeps people from the gospel? So often it's pride, right? It's pride that keeps many from confessing they can't do it on their own. That's what's wrong with every other way, right? It's all dependent upon works and that works only increases man's pride. But the way of Jesus is repentance, it is humility, it is surrender. Jesus is God's only provision for our sins. God's way is not our goodness, but rather the goodness and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The truth of Jesus being our only means of spiritual salvation is the driving force of evangelism, right? It's the driving force of missions. And if we truly believe this, then won't we look for every opportunity to tell people about this truth that Jesus Christ paid it all, that he's offering forgiveness, to those who accept what he did for us when he paid for our sin with his death on the cross. But don't miss verse 13 here in our passage. It says this, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they'd been with Jesus. These authorities knew there had been a total transformation in these men from Galilee because They had all gone into hiding after Jesus' crucifixion, right? They all went and hid out. But what a change in Peter. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in him. And I want to tell you, that's the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Uneducated means they, they hadn't studied under an approved rabbi, right? Here are laborers. Here are fishermen. How could they give such a powerful defense? Who taught them to speak like this? They recognized they had been with Jesus. They had been under Jesus' instruction. We know it was the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter. It was the Spirit who gave him the words, just as Jesus had predicted. But I want you to know today, that same ability, that same ability is ours today through the Holy Spirit, to speak with boldness. If you've been with Jesus, if you've been listening to him, if you've been spending time in the Gospels, it will be obvious in your life that you've been with Jesus. The question is, have you been with him? Because spending time with him, it changes you. Spending time in his word, it renews your mind. It transforms our lives so that the fruit of the spirit is evident in our words and in our actions. His life should be flowing through us. In this season, especially, hear me, compromise is not something the church can be a part of. Sadly, in many places today, The gospel is dead, even though it may look alive because of numbers and buildings and programs, right? 
But when the persecution comes, each of us in our lives, we're going to be faced with a decision. Don't say Jesus is the only way to God, they'll say. But we'll say, but I can't help it. This is what I know. This is what I've experienced. This is what I, I understand. He's the one that saved us. He's the one that, that took us off the path to destruction. Like, how can I possibly keep that a secret? When it comes to obeying God or man, we must obey God. Do you see how pivotal this moment is? The apostles are holding the future of the church in their hands. If they compromise the message now, in the face of persecution, it's over. And the same is true for us today. The same is true in our day. We cannot compromise the message in the face of persecution. The gospel is the most precious commodity in the world, but it will. I want to tell you, it will take courage to proclaim it. The message will bring persecution, so expect it. And when the persecution comes, proclaim it anyway. When compromise is offered, reject it. The most loving thing that we can do in our world today is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Would you stand with me as we prepare to receive communion today? As you prepare to receive the cup today, we understand that it is a, a symbol of what Christ has done for us. The apostles, the, the early church, they, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. And their meals were cent centered around what we're about to do in just a moment. They were centered around communion. It's, it's an act for us. Again, it's a, it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us, right? That his blood was shed for us, that his body was broken so that we could be made whole today as we receive communion in just a few moments. It's a reminder to us, right, of what Christ has done for us. But I also want you to understand this, it's also a declaration. When the early church would gather together and do this, the rumor was, man, these guys are eating flesh and they're drinking blood. <laughs> these guys are, are crazy, like what are they doing over there? But as they met together and they remembered what Christ did for them, they were also making a declaration. They were making a declaration of Jesus' death on their behalf, making a declaration that he's gonna come back one day, amen? And so as you hold the cup today, I want you to think about what you're declaring, not just over your own life, not just over sin in your own life, but what you're declaring as you say that Jesus Christ died for your sins. As you're making that statement, understand, it's something that could bring persecution. Don't back away. Don't compromise the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Let's allow the Lord to speak to us as we prepare our hearts to receive communion.